all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Hello, I'm Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advising firm and co-host of Money Talks. For over 10 years, Money Talks has been answering your personal financial questions and sharing knowledge about money management. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and this is your Southern Remedy show where you can call in with any type of question that you might have about your health or someone else's health in your family or maybe even a friend. It may be a new symptom that they're having, maybe a new medication or a new medical condition that they've been diagnosed with. We welcome all those questions and more. You can always email us. That email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. Hope everybody's having a great Wednesday. I've been out a little bit sick, and uh, but uh, fully recovered now, or at least I think I'm recovering. This is, uh, if we did mention it before, Heart Health Month. So that's a big push every year in February um, from a uh, just a focus on you know a certain aspect of your health. And can't think of anything uh, that that might be more important than heart health for all of us. Um, heart disease is the number one cause of death in the U.S., and certainly taking care of your heart is something that you want to pay attention to, even if you uh, tend to just ignore it and not think about it right now, or maybe you feel like that you're in pretty good health. There are lots of things that might impact the health of your heart that you may not be able to pick up on just by how you feel. So knowing something about it is a, a good idea. So, you know, just to break it down as simple as possible, the heart is really just a muscular pump, and it pumps blood throughout your body. Uh, your heart rate or your pulse sometimes is the number of times that your heart beats in a minute. And uh, resting heart rates um, at when you're not doing, you know, physical activities, that can vary from person to person. A lot of people are like, hey, my heart rate's 70. What should it be? Uh, but there's a wide variation of what's normal, a normal resting heart rate for each individual. Um, Thinking about your heart, there's a lot of things and, and choices that you could make to take some steps to reduce your chances of getting heart disease. So uh, thinking about all the things that can impact how well your heart functions to pump that blood to the rest of your body uh, is important. Some of the terms that we use like heart disease or cardiovascular disease uh, sometimes we use them synonymously, so uh, it does, you know, sometimes there is sort of a little bit of overlap there. But basically, um, there is, um, you know, uh, cardiovascular disease is the term for all types of diseases that affect both the heart and blood vessels. Let's go to David from Horn Lake. Good morning, David. 
Uh, thank you for taking my call. I like to. Uh, no, I got a little bit of a mystery. So if you can get point me in the right direction. Sure. I had a vision problem to where one of my both eyes closed. I could see a bright kind of a off-shaped square with a black dot in the center of it, and it only lasted for maybe a minute or two, and then my it, then everything was fine. All right. Uh, I had a low-grade headache for a week, and I noticed that I, on my right temple, without having any kind of, of um, um, falling or hitting anything or whatnot, I noticed I've got a uh, bruise there. So my question to you is, do you think, just based on my vague description, do you think that was a, maybe a TIA mini-stroke? Or do you think that maybe I have some type of a neurological problem? My family has a history of Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, and my sister had multiple sclerosis. So I'd like to know uh, where I need to kind of... Sure. Sort of what next steps do you need to do? Yeah, yeah. so so those symptoms, um, to to address your questions... um, you know, you can have all kinds of different things like that in your eye. Typically, the most common thing that everybody has is an after-image effect. So if you've looked at something, particularly something that's bright uh, for a certain amount of time, um, even if it's, it doesn't have to be, like, super bright, it can be just as bright as, a, say, a computer screen, um, that can um, stimulate the back of your eye, which is called the retina, and those cells that transmit those impulses into what our brain interprets as, as vision, as sight, that um, you, when you close your eyes, you can see an after image, and it tends to be the opposite. So if it was bright, now it's, it's dark. Um, now, that's the most common thing. The What you described is a little bit, it doesn't sound like you were looking at anything that looked like that. And if it persisted for a while, then it, you know, a lot of times there'll be problems with the retina itself. Um, either, and it could be a long list of things, David, that, that might be affecting that. Sometimes you can have a retinal detachment, and that is a combination of, uh, most common cause of that is trauma, but you can be predisposed depending on the shape of your eye. There are some medical conditions like high blood pressure and diabetes that might put you at risk for that too, or any type of blood uh, vessel damage to the, to the, uh, that, that feed the retina might cause a problem as well. And that can be an arterial problem where you're, you have a blockage there, and, or it could be a venous problem that the blood's not returning from the eye, from the, from the retinal vessels or retinal cells. Uh, as far as is this a TIA or a stroke, it can be in the same type of family due to decreased blood flow that can cause some of these symptoms. So particularly in anybody of any age, if you have a change in your vision like this where you're seeing objects that are there uh, when you close your eyes or even when you have your eyes open, if you have a sudden loss of vision, um, particularly if it's painless, um, then you need to go see a, uh, an eye doctor pretty quickly, like within the next day or two. Um, and the reason for that is a lot of times if there is a blockage, uh, we've gotten really good of what we can do endovascularly to identify that and sometimes open that up a little bit. 
But it could be any number of things. Now, as far as the blood vessel or the, the you know the um, the headache that you had and the bruising or over your temple, there is a an artery there called the temporal artery that sometimes can be damaged by various things, it, and not necessarily trauma. That would be the most common thing, but it doesn't sound like you've you've experienced that, and that can go along with changes in your vision as well just because it's not the the artery that feeds the eye itself but it is connected to that same system um so there may be there's some conditions particularly as you get older that can affect the blood vessels including the blood vessels inside your head and the blood vessels on the outside of your head um that can cause some problems there so Regardless, I think I'd have a, your physician check this out. <clears throat> it's not a bad idea to go to the eye doctor first. Um, problems with your vision can be very, uh, very serious if you don't if you don't get them looked at pretty quickly. But it doesn't sound like this was a TIA, but that is a possibility. It certainly doesn't sound like this is related to Parkinson's or um, Alzheimer's type dementia. Uh, or a movement type disorder, so like Parkinson's. So I, I don't think it's probably in that category. However, I am a little concerned because of the symptoms that you described that this might be a problem with the retina itself or a, um, or a blood supply problem. All right, thank you. All right. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning answering your calls and questions about any kind of health care topic that you might be experiencing or maybe somebody else in your family or that you know. We're going to go to Gene from Memphis. Good morning, Gene. Hello. How are you today? Thank you for answering my call. Sure. Uh, uh, I have a question uh, concerning uh, CoQ10 and uh, chromium that I bought from a private uh, pharmacy that's pretty famous in Memphis, uh, Champions, and I ran out of it. But I'm just uh, wanting to get your take on these Dr. Stephanie's the high blood, uh, blood sugar pills and uh, things like that, supplements. Well, I want to hear your take on those things. Sure. Yeah, so those are the, particularly the two that you've mentioned have been uh, sort of marketed towards um, a couple of different things, and some of them are heart health related, some of them are diabetes related. Coenzyme Q10 is, uh, is just what it says, it's a coenzyme that the body utilizes um, for a couple of different processes. But a lot of people have taken that, particularly if you're taking another medication for cholesterol to help with muscle cramps. And the data suggests that it doesn't really help that much in the studies where they've added that to people who are taking a statin medication. Uh, certainly it doesn't improve your overall cardiac health. Uh, it's not really an enzyme that you need to take as a supplement, but a lot of people do take that. and notice that their cramps increase or decrease rather and this is one of those and you probably heard me talk about this before with supplements that is not going to hurt you uh it's generally it's well tolerated doesn't really have a lot of side effects if you take it like the the recommendations are uh so i you know to usually tell patients hey this is there's not much data to support coenzyme q10 that's going to do much for you but it's not going to harm you so if you do notice that you have an improvement in symptoms then that's fine as far as treating diabetes, there's really not a whole lot of evidence that that's going to lower your sugar. Um, and um, I've seen at least one 
trial on that, and uh, there really wasn't any appreciable decrease in your blood sugar from taking that. Chromium is uh, also something that's it's one of the, the micro uh, um, requirements of, of some of the substances that your body utilizes. And generally, there's not really a deficiency of that one. Uh, that's one that's found pretty pretty much ubiquitous in a lot of different foods. But um, there's not really a role for that in the treatment either on either one of these. And I know a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of health food stores, a lot of other people will, will usually, you know, that's sort of their marketing is to say, hey, this is useful. It'll lower your blood sugar or it'll treat uh, blood pressure. But they they can do that because it's a supplement without a whole lot of evidence for that. And again, when I say evidence, it's, that doesn't mean, you know, your neighbor Joe that said, hey, I took this, my blood pressure went down, uh, because we really need more info than that to really make those kind of determinations, whether or not something's going to be uh, useful. But that being said, either one of those is not going to hurt you uh, from a, and that's one of the things that I, you know, just talk with patients all the time to say, okay, let's look at what your current conditions are. Let's look at what you're taking. Um, I certainly, if I had diabetes, I would not substitute either one of these um, for my treatment plan that my physician had for me for diabetes. So, um, you know, that's just important. There's a lot of other good medications that are out there or even lifestyle changes that are much more um, beneficial. I tell patients all the time, there was a study back all the way back in the 90s that was published in the um, New England Journal of Medicine there was a head-to-head comparison of a uh, diabetes medication called metformin, which is widely used to treat diabetes and in some instances to treat prediabetes. And they um, randomized patients to either take the metformin versus a moderate intensity exercise program most days of the week. And the exercise program actually did better in both of those groups and uh, than when compared to the metformin. So Modern intensity exercise. So in other words, Go ahead. So in other words, just get a dog and walk it uh, three, four times. <laughs> <laughs> that would be much more powerful, and we have the evidence to suggest that, right? Yeah, it's, it really is interesting. Like, like regular exercise is incredibly powerful if you have diabetes or if you're at risk for diabetes to prevent it. So, um, sure. you know, I'm about a 5.7 or uh, maybe the 6. I don't think I've gotten a 6 uh, A1C, but... Uh, I'm just below everything. I I don't really believe in pre-diabetes. I'm like, okay, that's like that pre-cancer or something like that. So I mean, <laughs> I, it's, I it's just don't tough, know why they tough. all of a sudden came out with that term. And well, I it feel is, it almost uh, kind of resemble they just throw a bag and and some little needle things at you and say, okay, you've got pre-diabetes. So here, go start punching your finger now. And I'm I kind of almost resent that. Is that is that normal? I mean, uh, to yeah. I would. I would. I would. In somebody. Yeah, in somebody who is pre-diabetic, and I agree that's a sort of a confusing thing. Basically, it's it's sort of like blood pressure. Like you can have an elevated blood pressure if your blood pressure is between 120 over 80 to 130 over 80. And although we don't, in most people, suggest that they take medications for that there are other things you should be doing to decrease it because there is some increased risk. So even though you're not at the cutoff for diabetes, the reason they call it prediabetes is that there's still a little bit of risk there 
over time, and you're more likely to progress to diabetes. But as far as checking your blood sugar, I don't know any reason why I would have anybody checking their blood sugar uh, unless they just like to inflict pain on themselves uh, and just to know what it is. Because, again, what are you going to do about it? Um, that's not a group of patients that you would be treating with the medication. So I, I wouldn't personally do that. I would, just like we talked about, you know, talk about the things that can impact it, like regular exercise and maybe modifying a little bit of what you eat. But um, I certainly wouldn't. There's not really a reason to. I'm, I'm with you, uh, Gene. I don't think I'd be sticking myself in that in that uh, range. So there's this one question that got me inspired all when you mentioning the diabetes itself. I heard, uh, I think on MPB, just not too long ago, there was, uh, I don't know if there's this Asian uh, researcher that uh, found out that the, I guess, well, I thought it was cancer, I believe, that they follow this little network of, of uh, the membrane that, or some kind of liquid that covers every organ or everything. They got this master highway, and you being in internal medicine, I, I thought maybe you would know about him saying that they kind of they have a fang or some type of hook that rips its way into the organs or something, and if they, he has found this type of deterrent that kind of rips off the fang so that the cancer can't spread. Do you know anything about that research? No, I, I don't, and there's not really, by what you're describing, um, I'm not really familiar with anything like that. It's like a membrane that coats everything. Like every organ's a little bit different, and there's certainly different, there's certainly common components of organs, but I just don't know enough about that to really comment on it. I, it doesn't sound like to me like that's going to, cancer's, you know, here's the thing about cancer, it's um we know a lot about blood pressure. We know how to treat it. We know a lot about diabetes and how to treat it. And we know a lot about, even about now, obesity and, it's, and, and how it contributes to those things. With most cancers, um, unless we catch them early, we still uh, don't have all the resources or the tools to really prevent them or even treat them. So there's a lot of things that have moved forward in cancer treatment over the last 20 years and a lot of good signaling me uh, medications, too, that target the individual cancers. But uh, it's uh, I'm not aware by what you described. There's not like a master membrane unless they're talking about the cell wall, but uh, having something to go in there and rip it open is probably not a good idea because that's all of our all of our cells. So I just don't know enough about what they were talking about to really comment on it. Oh, well, thank you so much. Yeah, I, I'm missing some really details, and I'm probably sure if I really took careful notes, I would be able to articulate that to you. But uh, thank you so much for for helping me with those questions that I had. That you are sir, you are welcome, and uh, thanks for listening and uh, calling in. This is Southern Remedy. Now we're going to go to Jonathan from Meridian. Yeah, I have a question about uh, things you can do to maybe uh, clear out your arteries, uh, food you can eat if you got, you know, uh, sticky walls or high cholesterol. Uh, what some things you can do besides the medication, you know, natural things? You know yeah, of. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know what you're describing is sort of the buildup of plaque is the is sort of the name we use for it. 
And that plaque is uh, really a combination of fat and cholesterol and calcium and other substances that are found normally in the blood. But it can build up inside that arterial wall and decrease the blood flow. And that can happen all over your body. But in particular, we think about it as it relates to the heart. And too much buildup of that can decrease the blood flow to your heart. And then you would have a heart attack or a heart failure. Um, and it also can affect other organs like your kidneys and your brain. So the, the things you can do to help uh, either regress that or to prevent it um, we've got a lot of good data on certain diets that are high in um, low in animal fats, very high in fresh vegetables and fruits that have things like antioxidants and phytochemicals that can help, if you want to think of it simplistically like this way, is keep that slick. Um, and in changing, uh, making changes over time, it's much easier to prevent it with things like this than it is to wait until you do have buildup of that plaque because um, it gets sort of walled off and, and capped over and sort of hard to, to remove it. But um, those those types of diets and regular exercise, you know, there's a substance that we use called TPA, tissue plasminogen activator. And uh, in it, this used to be used a lot more uh, in the past, but sometimes we'll still use it um, to, it's sort of a clot buster medication. And it's not something that we came up with on our own because we have this substance within our body. So we have endogenous TPA that's normally found inside our blood. And one of the best ways to increase that is regular exercise. So you can increase the normal levels that you would have uh, sometimes 200, uh, 400%. Uh, so, you know, that's that's something that you can do. So. Uh, I always hate to sound like a broken record, but eating that diet, particularly something like a DASH diet, the dietary approaches to stop hypertension, would be equally useful in um, in treating any kind of plaque or preventing that. And combining that with regular exercise can be very powerful. All right. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning answering your questions and calls about any kind of health care topic that you might be interested in. We're going to go all the way over to Alabama now with Steve. Good morning, Steve. Good morning. Every six months, I have to have blood work done for my uh, to get my prescriptions refilled. And for the last two times I've had this done, my bun and my creatinine level has been off the charts. My bun has been 24 and my creatinine was 1.95. And one of my doctors told me it was meloxicam because of it, so I got off of it. And uh, I really couldn't walk or do anything because I got arthritis, so I had to get back on it. But I've been off of it now for four days, and I have not had any problems, but I'm taking a extra strength Tylenol 500 milligram for arthritis. So is there anything else I can do to get this number down? Yeah, so so those two numbers are, you're correct, so those, those are two of the uh, lab tests that we look at to look at kidney function. And uh, right. the, the BUN is blood urea nitrogen, so that's a breakdown product of mostly proteins in your body. And um, that sort of gets flushed out through the urine by the kidneys. And then creatinine is another uh, substance that's, that's also made, uh, it, it's present in, um, in muscular tissue. 
So uh, those two together can tell you at least a little bit about kidney function. If, now, if you, if you fast for like six to eight hours, both of those numbers can be elevated, more so the BUN than the creatinine. So, and the BUN number that you, that you told me, it is a little bit elevated, but that's not, it doesn't sound like that's as, as concerning as the creatinine number. Uh, as creatinine goes up, that means that your kidney function, its uh, uh, effectiveness goes down. And uh, there is a more specific test. Sometimes there are some things about creatinine if you have a lot more muscle mass, uh, if you're taking any kind of supplement that has creatine in it. Sometimes that might affect that number too, and there's a couple other things that might do that. So um, they can check something called a, a cystatin C um, that that uh, is another blood test that's a little bit more specific. It's not it's not a common thing that's done. Certainly not on like regular screening labs, but that's something to follow up. Um, now it is true that any kind of NSAID, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug like uh, Mobic or Meloxicam that I think you mentioned, or even things like over-the-counter ibuprofen or naproxen. All of those can interfere with the kidney's ability to maintain its blood flow, and uh, it can lead over time uh, to a decrease in kidney function. And usually that's reversible, and that's one of the reasons why if you do have, particularly if you have high blood pressure or diabetes, you probably should limit the amount of those medications that you're taking. Tylenol, on the other hand, extreme Tylenol doesn't cause that interaction, so it's not toxic to the kidneys in that kind of way. There are some other medications that have been used for, um, you know, for arthritis-type pains uh, and, or any type of chronic pain. I know a lot of my patients, they'll do some things like uh, gabapentin or Cymbalta, and those work in, in different ways and aren't going to really affect your kidney function. The other thing to try to make sure that that creatinine stays down um, uh, over time, and by the way, this is not a really dangerous level, it doesn't sound like, for you. You could you could spend another 20 or 30 years of your life at that level and still not cause a problem. A normal creatinine is really depends on the individual and how much muscle mass they have in their age. But for the most part, you know, if you wanted to, to think of a normal number anywhere from like, 0.8 to 1.2 or 1.3 for most individuals would be sort of in the normal range. So at that level that you're at now in the high ones or, or low twos, the biggest thing would be to, to make sure that you're treating anything that might contribute to uh, decreasing kidney function moving forward. And that, again, would be making sure your blood sugar is at the right level, making sure your uh, blood pressure is, um, is treated to a, a good level too. But um, uh, there's a there's a list. Your physician could probably, or you could probably go to the either the um, um, American Kidney Foundation um, to on their website to look at at medications that might affect kidney function, or you could even just Google that. And there's a lot of them uh, that would come up that, that you could sort of avoid that. And then drinking plenty of fluids too at this point would be very helpful. Um, and by that, you know, water's probably the best, uh, but drinking anywhere from about two, two and a half liters a day, would, more so in the summer months if you're outside, would be would be good for good kidney function. Okay. And, and I was worried about it because my brother, he's going to die out of the DS bad kidneys now. That's really yeah. I'm trying to find out 
Yeah, and fortunately, it does sort of run in families. And there's some other causes of chronic kidney disease um, that if you if your creatinine continues to go up, they're probably going to want you to see a kidney doctor to investigate that a little bit further. But the biggest, uh, far and above, the the contributors to kidney disease in this country, and particularly in the South, are hypertension and diabetes. Yeah, I'll have a history of uh, kidney stones do real bad. Yeah, kidney stones can do it for different reasons because they accumulate in the sort of the collecting system and they can block uh, urine and it can back up and cause some damage to the kidneys themselves. So that's that's something else to look at. Uric acid is another one if you have gout that you would want to treat that appropriately. And anything that's going to affect the function of the kidney, uh, identifying that and then treating that problem uh, would, would help with your long-term kidney function. Okay, Ian, thanks for your help today. Yes, sir, and thank you for calling. This is uh, Dr. Jimmy Stewart on uh, Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Going to go to Bob from Maryland, I believe. Hello, Bob. Yeah, hi. How you doing? Good. Is that the state of Maryland? Yes, it is. I'm driving through Memphis. All right. Well, good to have you on the air. What's your question this morning? I'm in my mid-60s. And my blood pressure usually runs in the mid 130s over 70, mid 70s. It's uh, hard months. I was wondering, concerned, and talked to my doctor about medication. I guess. Yeah, you know there was a, a there's a lot of sort of landmark studies, what we call them, of, about blood pressure to sort of see what would be the appropriate level to where we treat blood pressure and. You're probably old enough to remember not, it wasn't so long ago that we had a cutoff of 140 over 90. So anybody who was under that we thought was you know, pretty safe as far as risk. But what we found out through studies like the SPRINT trial was that we really needed to treat blood pressure a little bit lower and sooner. So that's one of the reasons why our cutoff now is 130 over 80. So uh, the thing to re- keep in mind, too, because I have some patients and they're like, well, every once in a while my blood pressure gets under that. Is that okay? Uh, blood pressure can vary about 20% during the day, and it decreases at night quite a bit, too. So um, that is a normal variation of blood pressure. So we're really interested in what that true blood pressure is on average. And getting it um, outside of the office with an automated device is very useful as long as you're doing it correctly. But if it's consistently over 130, over 80, that is something that we would want to treat. And, again, we start off with diet and exercise. If you can do those things and make some changes there, maybe three to six months of doing that to see if that has an effect. And, you know, I mentioned the DASH diet a lot. That's about an 11-point decrease uh, maximum that you can see, which would put you in the in the treatable, you know, in your goal range of less than 130 on the top and less than 80 on the bottom. But if you can't, if, if that doesn't work um, by itself, that's the point where we would add medications um, to that. And in your case, uh, you know, there's a couple of different choices in patients that don't have a lot of symptoms that are no symptoms at all or they don't have a lot of other medical problems, then you really can choose amongst four different classes of medications to start them on. One is sort of what some people refer to uh, as a fluid pill, although that's not really what it does, like a thiazide diuretic, and hydrochlorothiazide is one of the most common ones. 
Another one is a dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker called amlodipine or philodipine. There's a bunch of them in that class, but amlodipine is probably the most common one. And then um, a, there are the ACE inhibitors and the angiotensin receptor blockers. So, you know, in your case, there's a lot of options. And any one of those would be useful in the treatment of your blood pressure after you've really tried those lifestyle changes. Uh, certainly if you smoke, stopping smoking is probably going to put you in the normal range. If you have the opportunity to lose some weight, that can make a big impact too. But the types of food you eat, if I had to pick one thing other than stopping smoking that can impact it that wasn't medications, uh, that DASH diet is very powerful. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the information. Yes, sir. Safe travels to you, and thank you for calling. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you, answering your calls and questions about all kinds of good stuff today. Y'all are always really good. All of our listeners are incredible about calling in with really useful information and always good topics to talk about. You can always email us. That email uh, address is remedy at mpbonline.org. Let's go to Judy from Tupelo. Good morning, Judy. I have a cold, uh-huh. and um, I don't usually go to the doctor for those kind of things. Right. But I've been told that um, doctors give you a steroid shot to help with your congestion and cough. Is that true? It is, is that- true. That, yeah, it is true that a lot of physicians will do that. Um, I typically don't do that for a number of reasons. And uh, so a steroid shot, or uh, some people would, would be more familiar with it, like prednisone or uh, a depo prednisone or a Medrol dose pack even, um, those are, are types of steroids. So those are anti-inflammatories. And what they do is they, you know, when you have a cold or any kind of, of viral infection, there's not really an antibiotic that's going to make it better, but you do produce your body to help fight those off produces a number of things and the stuffiness that you feel in your nose and sometimes you can have the sore aches uh, in your joints, uh, soreness in your joints or your muscles. That's your body's immune system to re- that's really fighting that off and those are some of the side effects. So it's not so much that it, the virus is doing that that's causing the symptoms as your body's immune response doing that. So what a steroid uh, injection or an oral steroid does is it cuts off a lot of those processes. So it weakens the immune system and shuts off those processes, but it makes you feel better, definitely. Um, so uh, it's it. that's why people are like, hey, I want to go get it because it makes me feel better. And certainly you, you do feel good after you get that. One of the problems with it, they, they've looked at this over time, most of the time, that's not going to weaken your immune system enough to where it prolongs the illness, but that's always a uh, that's always sort of a, a minor risk that because your body's not able to do everything it needs to do to fight that off, that you might have you know you might be, have the symptoms a little bit longer. The other thing is uh, steroid injections are not innocuous by themselves; they do have some side effects and particularly if you get more than about two or three uh, in a year. And this can also include things like getting a a steroid injection in a joint uh, to decrease the amount of inflammation uh, that you're having there from, say, arthritis. 
if you get more than about two or three a year, they can have long-term side effects. And some of those side effects are things like decreased bone mass, so it can put you at risk for osteoporosis. It can weaken the, uh, it can change the lining of your stomach uh, to put you at risk for uh, gastritis and sometimes uh, gastric ulcers. Uh, It can affect your eyes and put you at risk for getting glaucoma. Uh, It can increase your blood sugar. And certainly if you have uh, diabetes and you get one of these injections, even just one, it can raise your blood sugar for pretty significantly for about a week or two just because it's long acting. Mm. So it's not going to make you, it's not going to help with the infection. It'll make you feel better. But largely because of those other side effects, I don't do this a whole lot. Every once in a while I might do it, and it, I really have to think about it on an individual basis. But it's, it, doesn't have a lot of, um, it doesn't have a lot of evidence to support that it's going to help that actual infection, but it does make you feel better. Okay. Well, barring the um, steroid shot, which I haven't had one since 1986, what would the doctor do? Yeah, that's the reason why a lot of doctors will give it because there's not a whole lot of other things to do that make a big impact. Um, a lot of the over-the-counter medications, which by the time patients get to see me or any other physician, they've they've pretty much tried those. Those can help sometimes, yeah. you know, you know, but a lot of times they don't help too much. Um, there are some, uh, you know, prescription decongestant medications that can help. But to be honest, we don't have a whole lot for viral infections that can make them appreciably better in a short period of time. Um, But that's some of the things they could do. Now, every once in a while, you'll get a viral infection, and then you'll get a bacterial infection after that. Um, one, you know, this, we see this a lot in younger individuals and kids that they'll get, they'll pick up something at daycare or at school. They'll have sort of upper respiratory type symptoms, maybe a cough with it. And then two days later, they've got intense ear pain, uh, because now they have a bacterial infection in their ear because they've sort of closed up the normal drainage system. So it is possible in, in adults, one of the most com- more, more common things is sort of sinus infections, which, uh, you know, right. usually you'd get a, you'd get a, a, a viral infection first, and then maybe a week or so later, that's when it sort of sets in. And in those cases, antibiotics can be very useful because you're treating the bacterial side of it, but um, but not so much the the viral one. And you, you may go to a doctor, and they, you know I, know I still know a lot of doctors that still give steroid shots, but that's just my personal take on it. And I have seen some patients that have routinely gotten that year after year and not had any problems, mm. but I've also seen some that you know that they've they've gotten it two or three times a year consistently and. Now they they have some of those other side effects. Well, thank you. I might go on and see the doctor then. Yes, ma'am. I just hope you feel better soon. Well, yeah. If I can quit coughing. Yes, yeah, Uh, right. All right. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for calling. This is Southern Remedy. The number to call is one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Let's go to Lou. Good morning, Lou. How are you doing this morning? I'm great. I am not great. <laughs> okay. I am 70 years old, and I have uh, reoccurring UTIs about three a year. Mm-hmm. And I've 
um, I have diabetes, and I've never before had a culture come back to tell me that I had strep in my urine. Is that a dangerous thing, or not necessarily? Now, so, sometimes it can um, sometimes it can be a, a contaminant. Um, particularly, there are several different types of strep, streptococcus. So there are some that are that are more likely to give you a UTI, or it might be a contaminant. But it's not in and of itself. That's not you know like a warning sign. Like okay, this is really bad. The, a more important thing, if they and, and thankfully they did this, a lot of the times, if particularly if you have, as you probably know, recurrent ones, getting a urine culture where they grow out the actual bacteria that's causing the problem can be very useful in selecting the right antibiotic that, that's able to treat it. So um, the other thing that they'll look at is how many colonies. So there's a colony count when you you know anybody who's who's been through microbiology, you sort of uh, put a sample of the urine on a, in a on a plate that uh, allows the bacteria to grow out, and then they estimate how many different you know what the load what how how many of those bacteria that you have, and if it's just a a small amount that might not be even causing the infection. That again you have at least a little bit of bacteria in the urine uh, or uh, in the urine sample, and that may not mean that you actually have the infection. But um, it's nice to, to, you know, have that urine culture because it can show exactly what antibiotics are going to be effective. But, yeah, in and of itself, strep, strep is not a problem, you know, not, not something to worry about excessively in the urine. It's much more important to know what type of strep and then if it's uh, which antibiotics can treat that appropriately. And it may be something that they've already started you on. It's not something that uh, could be transferred to someone else so is it oh no not in the urine it's not like you know strep throat that you can uh, eat pretty easily transfer to other people is if it's in the urine uh, that's not something that's that's going to be uh, transferable and th- that's the case most of the time with with any type of urinary tract infection okay well that's a relief thank you so much yes ma'am thank you for listening and and for uh, reaching out to us you know, that's uh, recurrent UTIs can be a big uh, concern for a lot of people and uh, uh, getting an, into a good urologist that can also look at the urodynamics uh, of how you're urinating can be very helpful in, uh, in maybe uh, uh, contributing to that urinary tract infections. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at UMMC. Southern Remedy is produced by Kevin Farrell, and the podcast producer is Abram Nanny. You can tune in to MPB Think Radio every weekday morning at 11 for the full Southern Remedy lineup. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.